this week on the Backtable Podcast. People say, how do you come up with the idea for an invention? Well, I never came up with one. I came up with a problem that needed a solution. You know, like putting in the daughter dilators. The dilators we had were crap. They were shaped like a pencil. You know, that you, you just fought those things. And I thought, well, there's got to be something better than this. And so I finally said, well, you know, make them long and tapered, you know, like all the dilators are now. But before I designed that, there was nothing that was long and tapered. People don't believe it. They think, oh, we had them before that. No, you didn't. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. BD provides clinical education and training through the BD Peripheral Intervention Advanced Healthcare Providers courses. The BD Advanced team offers programs on advanced endovascular management of AV access, emerging techniques in the management of CLTI and venous disease, as well as many different resident programs and peer-to-peer opportunities. Contact your local BD representatives to learn more or visit the BD Advanced webpage. This discussion is supported by Philips OBL and ASC Solutions, Symphony Suite, the industry leader in opening cardiovascular office-based labs and ambulatory surgery centers. With the convenience of a single trusted point of contact, they offer more of what you need to turn your passion into reality, including a full range of high-performing, highly specialized equipment and services, devices, financial options, site planning, guidance on construction partnerships, and more. When it comes to opening an OBL or ASC, Symphony Suite delivers convenience and support as the expert you need, the partner you trust. To learn more, visit philips.com slash symphony suite. Now, back to the episode. Hello and welcome to Backtable Podcast. Uh, this is Peter Horner entering from Denver, Colorado, and I'm interviewing Dr. Hal Coons from San Diego. We wanted to have him on the show to talk about his history, to talk about his career and how much he has contributed to our field and maybe where the field is going and maybe share some funny stories along the way that you, of people that you might know. So Hal, welcome to Backtable. Thank you, Peter. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, I know you from Western Angio. I think you might be the longest running member of Western Angio meeting out in California and uh, West Coast and Hawaii. Yeah, I'm the last survivor of the first meeting. Wow, wow. And uh, who was at that first meeting, Hal? Oh, well, it was uh, Charlie Dodder and Joseph Fresh and a bunch of guys that were in private practice, uh, Charlie being being the big man, you know. But for me, I was a, a little kid from Chicago. Family moved to California right after the Second World War. Kind of just went through school, got into Pomona College and went on to UCLA Med School. Although I was a math major in college, I decided I wanted to do medicine instead and ended up uh, at UCLA doing my medical school. And all the radiologists were having a good time. They were always laughing and enjoying themselves. Most everybody else is pretty miserable. So I thought, (laughs) that looks like someplace I ought to be. Uh, But I knew I wasn't going to be doing barium enemas. That was just not in the cards. And, And in fact, I did a carotid arteriogram as a medical student. It was a, a situation where everybody was tied up. This guy came in. I was at the VA, and this guy came in. Obviously, he had a subdural. And they said, well, can you can you do it? And I went, well, what do I do? Well, I put a needle into the carotid. 
okay, and then you inject this amount of stuff and take pictures. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, okay. So I did it, and sure enough, he had a subdural. It was easy to see. They were busy doing a neurosurgical procedure and said, um, well, maybe you could put a tree fine hole in. I went, no, 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 no. I'm a medical student. Let me be. <laughs> so I, I wasn't afraid to... So you weren't afraid to stick a needle in the carotid artery, but doing a trephination was a little much. Uh, yeah, that was not going to happen. As a med student. I, no, I, <laughs> so I, had, I, I was crazy, but I had limits. Uh, not very much, but I, I had some. But I just really was always ready to take on a challenge and kind of be a maverick. And so as a resident, I was the one that didn't kind of follow the course everybody else was following. And, and then I had the moment that changed my life is when Joseph Resch uh, came to UCLA. You know, he originally went to Oregon with Charlie. He was actually invited as a speaker. And uh, then they had the Czech revolt and he couldn't go home. And so he stayed with Charlie for a while and then came down to UCLA. But they had him reading chest x-rays with first-year students. And he, he hard to understand him. His accent was really tough, as you know, even yeah. as he got older, been around a while. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> so I saw him do a procedure. He did a direct puncture of the spleen to get a splenal portogram. Took him 15 seconds, and I went, whoa, wow. That's so, <laughs> I said, let me know every time this guy works. And so he was doing a lot of selective injections to try and diagnose pancreatic cancer. So he's into you know gastroduodenal, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how we had to do it before CT, before ultrasound. And so... I just watched him, and the nurses didn't like working with him. So I said, hey, you know, I'll be his nurse. I'll, I'll be happy to be his nurse. And so I'd be in the middle of an upper GI. they say, you know, Dr. Resch is doing studies. they got to go, got to go. And so I'd run off and, and work with him. <laughs> and so I, and at, at that time, we had to make our own catheters. There were no preformed catheters, no comfy catheter, anything like that. So... You know, you had to preform them, and to do those little subselectives, you need to have a little curve here, a little curve there. And so we had a you know tea kettle going, and I I made catheters for him and and for Julie Roman, who came up with the pigtail for doing pulmonary arteriograms. And so I was kind of the making catheter guy. That's fantastic. This is just to remind people that radiology hasn't always been three dimensional, right? I mean, it was two dimensional <laughs> at that time. I mean, you were you were doing. <laughs> You were doing angiograms to diagnose things that we, you know, diagnose with CT and MR and exactly. ultrasound these days, right? Exactly. So what One of the most curious, um, fascinating catheter shapes that I've seen is the left gastric catheter, because it's got several different curves and bends, you know. Were you, right. making, were you steaming those? Yeah, well, absolutely. Wow, that's I mean, cool. We had rolls of catheter material. You cut it off, you put some heat on one end and flared out like a bell, so that's where you put the stopcock. The other end, you... Heated a little bit and pulled on it till it was tapered, and then you had a, a steam kettle going, and you'd twist it this way, this that way, and then put it in cold water. Didn't last very long, but good enough to do it. You know, it was just a really interesting time. We were doing direct punctures of the abdomen of intrauterine babies for uh, RH factor. You know, they they would die if you didn't get a transfusion in them. And we didn't have ultrasound, so you're looking through the water and poking away, and I had the luck of being successful and hitting the abdomen without the, the liver or whatever and doing a transfusion on a baby. I was a second-year resident, so then I became I became the fetal transfusion guy. Not my favorite procedure. It was so hard because the kids would move. I mean, you'd poke them a little bit, and they'd start wiggling. And so then you were stuck, so you had one chance— 
And, you know, when you're looking through the water, they're not very well calcified, and you're kind of going, oh, I think about right here. But nobody wanted to do it because if you missed, it was a terminal event, but this was a terminal event they were facing. I mean, you know, mom's going to eat up all their blood cells, and they're going to die anyhow. So I thought, well, gee, you know, if there's no better choice, why wouldn't you try at least? Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think that yeah, we're all kind of put into that situation sometimes. And I think of like heroic tips procedures on patients who with high MELD scores and, you know, they they're have varicell hemorrhage and are just on death's door, you know. So we do, we as IRs, we do get put into that situation a lot, right? And, and we do have minimally invasive techniques, which really help, which is amazing. You've seen the certain, the, the evolution of that from the very beginning, really, which I find it fascinating. Even like when I was in training at the daughter in 07, 08, Fred Keller, he still had a Erlenmeyer flask on a, you know, <laughs> yeah. on a, on a heat plate steaming. And we did, we actually did shape a few catheters and I'm not sure if it, we really had to, or if he just wanted to show us uh, kind of how it used to be done, which I thought was super cool and very interesting. You, you needed a shape they didn't make. I mean, you just, you had, I had it all the time until I retired, you know, and it was just something where if you were going to try and make that turn, be a lot easier if you did it and had this shape. And so, boom, yeah, we had it going the whole time. You know, it was one of those situations where you kind of get inventive in terms of, well, I put it in, it's going to turn backwards, so then I need to turn it back this way. <laughs> so you're trying to create in your mind what it's going to do inside the body, you know, and, and hopefully you're right. If not, you do another one. <laughs> Totally. I mean, yeah, even in, in my career, like I've seen more recently, you know, we have, we have pre-shaped microcatheters now, but there were times where you would take a needle or a hemostat and I would curve the end of the microcatheter in a very similar kind of yep. fashion. You kind of make what you need. And I love that about our field. It's so interesting to talk to you because I also had Dave Cumpy on and you guys are very similar in a sense of like, you're just like doers. Like you guys, you, somebody cups you, you hear about a problem and you're like, I think I can figure out something, you know, like I'm just going to be a maverick. And I think that's really like a very common theme among Daughter and you know, Joseph Resch and you and Kumpi and Sauce. Every, I mean, everybody we're going to hopefully talk to on this podcast series, you guys all have kind of very similar sort of spot, you know, I mean, very, very interesting um, to me. You know, I think a lot of us people now, you know, we take a lot of that for advantage, right? We take it for granted. Well, of course, it was a very different time. I, you know, I'm one of the few guys that was never in academics. I went right from UCLA, actually doing the Maverick thing. I was with Joseph, and uh, somebody called from the VA across the street and said, hey, can you put a catheter in a paddock artery? Well, yeah, okay. So I went over there and I thought, hey, this hospital has got 1,000 patients in it. And the fourth year at UCLA was minimally involved in you doing cases. I probably would have done 15 maybe. And I thought, I want to do a 1,000. You know, I, I don't want to do this. So I asked, can I do a fellowship? And the head of the department said, well, we don't have a fellowship. There's nobody to train you, but we'd love to have you come. We'll, we'll create one. So I went, okay. So I told <laughs> the chairman that I was leaving, and he said, you can't leave. If you leave, I'll make sure you never finish your residency. And I went, oh, that doesn't sound nice. He wanted me to be a neuroradiologist. And so I didn't want to be a neuroradiologist. <laughs> so uh, the, Leo Riggler, who was the head of our training program, said, don't worry, Hal, you, you know, I'll, I'll take care of you. He can't do that. And so I took off on my own. And doing that, I was able to do the first ever arterial embolization. Really? Wow. Okay. So tell me a little bit about that. How did, how did that come about? What did you use? And what was the situation? I had a young patient. He was in his late 20s who had had 
tuberculosis and had bilateral thoracoplasties, and so the surgeons didn't want to put him to sleep, bleeding from a DU. The surgeons didn't want to put him to sleep. The anesthesiologist said, no way. So I put a catheter in and dripped a little uh, epi, and he stopped, and then I turned it off, and he'd start again. And we did that for a couple of days, and I finally called Joseph, who was, he said, you go, I'll hold your hand. So I said, okay, because I didn't know anything. I'd only done a couple of cases when I was there. So I said, what do I do? He said, I'll tell you why. You take the venous blood, you let it clot, and then you inject it, and it'll stop it. And I said, Oh, just venous blood? He said, yeah, arterial doesn't work. Got to be venous. So I went, yeah, okay. So I let it clot. I injected and it stopped. And so I called him and said, Joe, it worked. He said, I know, it worked. He said, write it up. You'll be famous. I said, no, it wasn't my idea. It was your idea. I was just a monkey squeezing the the syringe. You know, I didn't, I didn't come up with that. And so it was about three months later, he did a case and wrote it up and appropriately was credited with the first arterial embolization. So I have, I have no problem with that. I also watched him do the first tips on a dog in 1969, I think it was, 68, something like that. He was at UCLA, right? And he yeah. was trying to, I think he was uh, he working on, tri- they were doing transjugular cholangiography, right? Right. And he kind of accidentally would get into the portal vein, right? Exactly. And he was like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. He was really good doing the, the splenoportograms, so he was already into obstructed biliary systems and that sort of thing. So this was just a natural for him. Hey, if we could do this, he was he was something. When I was a fellow, he would still be at the Daughter Institute at the research lab, and he would come over and kind of hang out in the control room and watch his fellows doing cases and stuff. He's just the kindest, most gentle man like I've probably ever come across in medicine. Just And like, just very curious, like probably one of the most curious people I've ever met, you know, just a class act all around. I think he was kind of like the Yang to the Charlie Yang. Oh, well, they were very different people. They were very different people. Yeah, and Charlie had great ideas. He just had brilliant forethought, not great hands. I don't know if you ever saw him work, but, you know, Joseph had great hands. <laughs> so they, they were a great combo together. It's probably why Charlie would do his movies. I don't know if the listeners have ever seen the old movies that Charlie Dodder would make. I mean, and they're absolutely fascinating. I've got copies of them that I got from Fred Keller and Cook has them, but it's fascinating. And like, I think Charlie was almost always like filming Joseph though, wasn't he? Like for the mesenteric one. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, Joseph really had great skills. Yeah. Do you have any funny, uh, interesting stories about Charlie Dodder or anybody maybe that we'd want to hear about? Yeah. Well, those moments where you think, oh, wow, maybe I'm okay at doing this stuff. It was a Western Angio meeting, and um, I had taken the Dodder dilator and put it into bile ducts because everybody was putting in these little eight French catheters, you know, little strips of catheter with holes in them, and they were clogging or migrating and I thought, well, you know, you need a much bigger tube, and the only big tube I knew around, because I had done a couple of dotted angioplasties, was that big 12-French dotted sheath. So I thought, well, you know, if you just cut that thing off the right length and make a couple holes in it, it it would drain the bile because it's big. And so uh, I started making them. You know, they weren't made. I made them. I cut holes in them, cut them the right length or tried to. And so uh, it was a new step in how you do this stuff. So I presented it. That Western Angio, a little five minutes of this is what I'm doing. I'm putting these things in. And Charlie's sitting in the back, kind of, you know, slumped over, and, and he wiggles his finger, come here, kid. And so I go back there, and he said, you got it. 
He kind of, the minute you start talking, I thought, that's it. I've been trying to figure out how to drain those bile ducts for years and haven't come up. The minute you start talking, I thought, that guy's got it. I like your style, kid. Don't take shit from anybody. <laughs> and, this is, and then he said, do you want to work with me? I've got this new material called nitinol. There's really something. I got it from the Navy. But I was too shy or embarrassed or I couldn't call him and say, hey, I want to work with you. You know, I'm I'm just a private practice kid in San Diego, you know. And so I just he was just too big a person for me to call and say, hey, you said I could work with you. I want to do it. But it, it kind of stamped me as being okay, you know. And Charlie, when I said, I like your style, kid, I thought, yeah. What a nod, you know. Yes, what, exactly. Yeah. You know, and he was the one that introduced me to Grunzig. Oh, wow, cool. So you got to meet, you got to meet Andres. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, wow. So yeah. was that when he was in Emory, at Emory, or was he, was he in the States at that time? Or He'd just come to Emory, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever get to see Grunzig work? How were his hands? I didn't. I assume he was good. You know, he was... But he's a cardiologist, you know, I mean, how good could he be? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I understand. He was, he, he was really very good from what every, everybody told me. Yeah, that's cool. Now, I mean, speaking of cardiologists, so we're going to talk a little bit about cardiology just for a second because I, I, I was just thinking of something. I actually met an older interventional cardiologist recently on a job I was doing, and uh, he actually had was a fellow under Mason Soans. And I got to talking to him about Judkins and Sones and like, they're again, like completely different kind of people. And they, I, th I think there's a lot of bad blood between those two. And yep. I, I remember reading the story of Mason Sones kind of coming out to visiting Judkins and Judkins showing him how he was catheterizing the arteries with these pre-shaped catheters, you know, that he was making. And like, I think he had the tech actually catheterize the coronary arteries or something. And Mason Sones is just like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you have to be a physician to do this. It's so complicated, you know? And Judkins was like, no, you can actually pre-shape these catheters and make it really easy, you know? I was, so radiology is a completely, you know, different way of looking at things, which I absolutely love, so. Well, Kurt Amplatz was at Western Angio one year, and he showed a movie where he did a direct puncture of the left ventricle and to catheterize the carotids. And, you know, we all went, Ugh. Oh, wow. Oh, and he said, yeah, I showed this at the same time that Judkins showed that he was coming from the groin. So I went home and I started doing him from the groin and he went home and started puncturing the left ventricle until he had a complication and that was the last of that. And so somebody in the audience said, wow, you know, you really had a lot of guts. He said, you know, there's just nobody doing that kind of stuff. And this is another one where you feel like maybe you've made it. He looked at me and said, no, nah, he's one of the guys that would do it. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, well, if I thought that was the best way, I might. That's exactly right. You kind of know what you know. So uh, tell me a little bit about kind of in your early career, what was the equipment like? I mean, we talked a little bit about the catheters, but even guide wires were in their infancy at that time. But what about the angio equipment? Like you, you cut film, like how long did it take to do a diagnostic angiogram? I mean... Uh, well, you know, the biggest part was the changers, you know, were great big things and they were mechanical. So it's wham, 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 throwing these cassettes loaded with films. And, you know, I mean, there were different kinds, but that was a standard one. And usually you couldn't get them close enough to the patient to have very good films. So I spent a lot of time improving the quality of the screens and stuff because the images were, were pretty horrible. When I went to the VA, I couldn't even read the films that were so bad. I said, well, we need to change the tube. And the guy said, oh, well, we can't until it burns out. I said, what? He said, no, you can't have a new tube until it burns out. I said, well, let me set up the dials for the next patient. <laughs> just turn it up. 
moved the patient off the table, <laughs> hit the button, burned out the tube, and said, okay, let's get a new tube. Yeah, it was very, very um, slow. It was really slow because you'd have a jam and then you'd have to do it again, or the injector wouldn't inject, or it'd inject twice, or and then getting the films took, you know, they had to go into the developer and all of that. So everything was really very slow. So you just couldn't move ahead too quickly because it was just so slow every case. And, you know, when you're doing interventional stuff, you don't want to wait for a half hour for something to come out of the changer. So you kind of moved on before you knew for sure what was happening. And they just kept improving the tubes and decreasing the radiation. But, you know, I, I got a lot of early, early in my career, I got a lot of radiation doing things like tips and all the biliary work that I did. That kind of became my specialty by default in that I, uh, I was willing to do it. And most people weren't. So I got cases referred from all over the country because I was willing to go in and struggle in the bile ducts. When I look at your publications, it seems uh, there was a lot of biliary work, right? I mean, you did like you were researching and publishing about metallic stents and you were really in the biliary space a lot. Was there anybody else doing that or were you, were you like, was that like your organ? Yeah, there were people doing it. Probably Ernie Ring on the West Coast was doing a lot of stuff. You know, I, I kind of got to know Gian Turco, who was really a brilliant guy. Uh, one of the great inventors, him and Stan Cope were really superior at coming up with medical devices. And so Caesar and Joseph said, well, you want we have these. Would you like to put them in bile ducts? Because, you know, you couldn't put them in arteries till you're sure they could work in bile ducts. So I went, okay. So we were at, in Berlin at one of the Cersei meetings. So we were talking about how we're going to do this. And my daughter was there and we were going to go to East Berlin that day. And Joseph said, no, 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 we're going to talk about this. I said, hey, I'm in Berlin with my family. I'm going to go. He said, oh, I can't believe it. You'd do that instead of what we're working on? I went, well, you know, you got to mix a little <laughs> bit of pleasure with it. So that was how focused the rush was. It was like, you know, forget Berlin. You know, of course, he didn't have fond feelings for anything going on in the East, that's for sure. But right. you know. Sure, sure. <laughs> but once those things came about, then I, then I had, you know, because I'd already done a lot of biliary work before that, but now suddenly we could reconstruct the entire biliary tree and, and did it. You know, in patients with cholangiocarcinoma, I'd, you know, put all these stents in and then we'd radiate and had some really terrific results, two years without any recurrence and that kind of stuff. So, But mainly it was because nobody else wanted to do it. It does seem to be the case sometimes that, you know, no one else wants to do it, so it becomes our special, your sub, subspecialty. Yeah. Well, they're long and they're slow. and Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and one of the really exciting things about uh, biliary work now is that we have these smaller endoscopes, you know, uh, these right. spyglass uh, yep. endoscopes that we can use. And it's really, uh, cl cholangioscopy is really becoming a, a bigger part of my career than uh, and I didn't even expect that. So it's it's really cool to see kind of the, the crossover between GI and uh, IR. Yeah, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty beautiful it is a lot of fun but you know like i think both specialties are crossing over a lot because they have endoscopic ultrasound now you sure. know i mean it's a very uh interesting time i i think and we can really help patients uh to a great degree um so speaking of like inventions um you know, i've used your feeding tube set um how did that come about and i don't know who carrie was he was my partner so elzate is that greg elzate yeah Greg Elzadi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I, I, tra I trained him. He was actually a fellow 
at the university, and they didn't have any cases, and I was swimming in them. And so they talked the guy into uh, into letting them come over and spend six months with me. And because they were part of the U, they could do cases. And so then when they finished their training, I said, hey, you want a job? And Elzadi said, you bet. And <laughs> we were off and running. And Pat Carey was at the U as an interventional radiologist doing research, and his wife worked with me. She was a tech. I knew about him, and I said, hey, you know, we think he'd want to come over here. She said, no, he's really happy at the U, and he wants to write papers. I mean, and, you know, next time we're somewhere, let, let, let me talk to him. And so I, I kind of enticed him into joining us. So he was the first guy after me doing IR in San Diego. Really? Okay, so I was going to ask you that. So when you started, like you were the only person doing IR in San Diego, right? Yeah, well, there was no such thing. <laughs> but what happens is I went from the VA into the service. I, you know, it was a very plan, so I had to go in after I finished my residency. So then I had to go in, I had to go into the Air Force. The Navy didn't need anybody. The Army didn't need anybody. But the Air Force, because it was kind of winding down in, in Vietnam, but the, uh, the Air Force needed me, so I went to Wilford Hall, the big hospital, you know, the Bethesda of the Air Force down in San Antonio. And guess what? They had a lot of GI bleeders. Guess what? I was embolizing them. And so all of a sudden, they had a practice where all the GI bleeders would come in. They'd get an hour of ice water lavage before I had the scopes. And uh, if they didn't stop, then they called me. So uh, I did hundreds of embolizations. I even embolized a spleen using chunks of muscle because you needed bigger stuff than clots. Uh, and a patient, uh, you know, who had hypersplenism and was eating all of the... Uh, I'm just, in my mind, I'm trying to figure out how you got muscle to inject. <laughs> so. uh, well, you know, it was... That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was a teasing it under a microscope, you know, but I just, I needed volume. And actually, I worked with a guy in the lab who told me about making clots that were so tough you had to cut them with a scalpel, you know, using Amicar, aminocaproic acid, like they use it uh -huh. in prostate patients yeah. or used to until you started embolizing them. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, boy, yeah. we got tough clots. <laughs> you mix them in a, in a glass bowl with a wooden stick. I think that was kind of voodoo, but we got clots that were like, literally, I had to cut them up in order to get him into the catheter. So we we had some good stuff going there. But when I came out, then, of course, I had this huge experience having been in a big hospital and really, really busy. And so, you know, I got a job in San Diego, um, and off we went, you know. And I, I was only here for two years until they put an article in the paper going, you know what this guy's doing? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like... Yeah, I mean, they said it in a nice way. They weren't, they weren't <laughs> accusing me of doing malpractice or anything. But And so, uh, you know, I was embolizing patients that had crush injuries to the pelvis because, you know, the surgeons can only just go in and ligate. I mean, there, there's no way of finding in that hamburger what's going on. And so they would call me, I'd embolize, and then they would go in and do what kind of repair they had to do. So that became a standard in our place. And I did a lot of of different stuff, embolizing uh, for hemostasis, you know, epistaxis. If they couldn't stop it, then I'd give it a shot and that kind of type of thing. So, and I did abscess drainages and gastrostomies 
guest rush me with Pat Carey, we decided, you know, they were doing surgeries on these poor patients because they couldn't eat. And we thought, well, there ought to be a way of doing it. And I figured out the stomach is big. You can fill it with air and push all the colon out of the way and puncture it. So I punctured it, and by God, it worked. And then I figured out that, you know, the stomach was like a self-sealing tire. It had three layers of muscles so that all you, although you punctured it, you didn't cut all the fibers. You just pushed them kind of out of the way. And so then when you pulled it out, it didn't leak. So that was that was how we got that one wow. going. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, we that was in the early 80s, wasn't it? Yep. Early, mid 80s yep. Yep. when you did that? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think actually percutaneous endoscopic had just kind of came on board too. And you guys were thinking it might be a better way. Well, you know, they at the point that we actually first started doing it, they weren't doing any. We we were we were doing it or the surgeons were doing oh, it. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You know, and you, you just have those kind oh, of okay. experiences. And it's one of those things where I think it was 85 they had a meeting at Mass General. You know, you could put a paper in. They give you eight minutes, and so I was doing a whole bunch of different stuff. You know, doing a lot of renal stone work, and you know, just all whole kinds of stuff. So I submitted six papers to this thing, and they were accepted. And so I go to this meeting. I'm just a little kid in the back, you know. And <laughs> this this was a changing moment in my life. I'll have to say. So I'm sitting in the back, and. And so I go up to make my first uh, presentation, and I present it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm not sure I want to say who it was. But anyway, a guy running it from Mass General that ran angiography said, well, to the audience, you know, this guy submitted six papers on stuff most of us have never heard of. And he's not done one or two. He's done a bunch of them. So I accepted all six of them to expose him as a fraud. Oh, you know, what? there was this kind of wow. stunned silence. And then he turned to the audience and said, what do you think? Think it's real? And they all kind of applauded. He said, looks like it's real. We just couldn't believe there was somebody out there doing this stuff that nobody's ever heard of. And so he was so kind to me. He invited me to the speaker's dinner, and I sat next to Kurt Amplatz. And so we traded ideas and whatever, Amplatz being the guy he was, we were talking about real stonework when he was lecturing. And I said, well, you know, if you come in the calyx and there's one over in the opposite side, da, 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 talking about it, he just stared at me and went, how many have you done? I said, I don't know, 25. He said, that's as many as I've done. Why don't you tell me the answer? Don't ask me questions like that. <laughs> he was great. <laughs> and then Plinio Rossi, you know, was the father of interventional and trained Barry Katzen uh, in Italy sat next to me on the other side of me, and he said, geez, why aren't you publishing? I said, oh, man, I'm busy. I, you know, I'm not in academics. And he said, no, you've got to publish. You know, we've got to know about this stuff. And I went, oh, you know, I don't know. And so he said, let's walk back to the hotel together. And he's trying to figure out how's he going to get me to publish. He probably said, look, your kids are never going to know about this if you don't publish. Somebody else will claim it as theirs. So if you if you don't publish your new ideas and stuff, it's just going to vanish and be somebody else's. And you 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 owe it to your kids. So I thought, well, I'll publish a couple, you know. And so I published a couple, but not many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a, as a private practice doc, yeah, it's it's tough to do all that. To find you the time bet. to do all that, especially because you were you you were kind of solo for quite a while then. Oh yeah, right. Long time. Yeah, and, until. Well, I was solo for over 15 years, yeah. 
<laughs> I was busy. <laughs> That's why I got too much radiation. Did you ever take vacation? I mean, uh, well, you know, I took a vacation, kind of. But every vacation was a speaking engagement somewhere that somebody had invited me to. So, and I, you know, I went all over the world, you know, because people wanted to hear what you have to say. And uh, lectured, you know, started up the Interventional Society in Hong Kong and Japan and uh, Thailand. You know, went all over. That was pretty much what I did on my vacation was go somewhere and, and lecture. It turns out, you know, at GE, I uh, had a new lab and installed at my place. And so then these people would come over and see what we were doing and then invite me to come. Said, will you come to Japan? I said, sure, you pay for it. I'll come. <laughs> it was easy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, and now, and now, now it's like, you know, we've seen a lot of in innovation in the IR realm coming from Asia, right? So, right. Well, wow, thank you for, thank you for like spearheading that. I mean, I, I know there's a big push, you know, between SIR and Asian societies and uh, a lot of cross, you know, pollination going on and uh they're they're doing fantastic work and some of the most exciting stuff is coming out of japan and china and korea it's really exciting it was fascinating it really was you know i uh, in india they didn't want me to talk to anybody except them because they wanted to keep it a secret i didn't realize you know their pay is so low as a professor even that they always had the side practice and if they had something like prostate embolization or i did uh, you know uterine artery embolizations and for fibroids and that sort of thing. And so I'd take something over there and they'd say, well, just tell me, don't tell the other guys. And so I finally got everybody together and said, look, you know, I'm going to stop coming. I'm not coming here to, to give you something that you can line your pocket with. Not that you can't do it, but, you know, you should be sharing this with everybody. So I started the Indian Interventional Radiology Society and we had our first joint meeting. I was the interpreter between guys from Gujarat you know, and guys from Delhi spoke a different English. And so although the whole meeting was in English, they couldn't understand the, the northern Indian speaker if they were from the south, from, from Kerala. You know, they, they they didn't do it. So it was fun. I was very, And that's really what happened when I had to retire, you know, early because I had too much radiation. I had really serious radiation cataracts, and I had a biopsy of my hand, which was advanced radiation fibromatosis. And somehow advanced slowed me down. I thought, you know, wait a minute. Oh, you know. And so then I started, started what, watching the clock to see how much fluoro time I'd had. So I talked to an oncologist. He said, what do you think? And he said, you got to stop. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to compromise a patient if I don't stop. I felt like I could still go on, but I hated stopping. I loved every second of it. So that's when I started traveling. So when was that? Was that in the 90s? I retired in 96. Wow, that's that's amazing. I mean, boy, I mean, you retired, but you didn't retire. You were still active and you've contributed a lot to the field, of course. You try, you know. I mean, people say, how do you come up with the idea for an invention? Well, I never came up with one. I came up with a problem that needed a solution. You know, like putting in the daughter dilators. The dilators we had were crap. They were shaped like a pencil. You know, that you you just fought those things. And I thought, well, there's got to be something better than this. And so I finally said, well, you know, make them long and tapered, you know, like all the dilators are now. But before I designed that, there was nothing that was long and tapered. People don't believe it. They think, oh, we had them before that. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was preparing for our talk today, and um, I was coming across Cook's catalog. And you've worked with Cook probably the most, uh, right? 
I actually did a lot with Meditech before they became Boston Scientific. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. But but interesting. Yeah, those things with with my name on it are are cook. Okay, so so I was going to ask you. So the dilators that we use every day are those are are those yours? God knows I should have done a patent on those little suckers. No, I mean yes, they <laughs> they, they are my design. Yeah. let's put it that way. They they did right, not right, exist right. prior to me designing right. them. You know, and the and the interventional wire was because we had the Lunderquist wire which was actually a coat hanger. It was a rod. And so you make one bend it and you never get it out, you know, so they didn't work. So it was like I needed something stiffer than the usual guide wire, but not solid. So that's how that came up. That was the first one to use a Trumo guide wire in the U.S. Oh, wow. Great wire. Great. Fantastic wire. Yeah, it was designed in Japan. And the guy came to to watch me work, and he brought them. His friend designed it, and he was from the University of Tokyo, and he brought along as a gift. First time I used it, I got it wet. It was on the floor. I went, whoops. I have to watch that little baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're slippery. A well-known interventional radiologist said, told me, they're too slippery. And I went, there is no such thing. Come on. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I, and they nailed it. I don't know what their secret sauce is for creating that wire, but it's an absolutely fantastic wire that we all use every day. It changed everything. It was the biggest thing. They had no idea what they had because they were making thermometers and other stuff. They had no idea what they had. I finally went over there and said, look, you know, this is going to change everything. And they went, really? Yeah, okay. So then I went once a year, I'd go there and design other things. The gold dip was my design and all the twists and all the stuff in there were all my design over the years. I've had fun. This I've had a I've had a great time, you know. I, I just wanted to thank you for all you've done for us. I, I think we all stand on your shoulders, you know. Um and uh one one thing that I I'm picking up on our conversation here is just your your absolute passion is like infectious. Like it's very contagious, you know. Uh, I saw a video that you recorded when you, it's on YouTube, if anyone wants to check this out, six minute video of you talking um, when you went over to Spain to work the Jesus Usan oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, minimally invasive clank. And like, it is a really good interview because like you're just smiling throughout the entire thing. You're just like talking about how passionate you are for the field. And, and I think you had retired uh, from active yeah. practice at that time. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I was doing live, I was doing courses with hands-on for, you know, guys that want to learn how to do this stuff and not do it on patients. So we were doing it on anesthetized pigs. We did it at uh, MD Anderson with Sid Wallace and different places around the world with Andres Lunderquist in, in uh, Malmo. Uh, and then there in Spain, he would have it every year and it would be a week-long course, and my whole joy was to get these guys in trouble where they couldn't figure out how to get out. And one, uh, one very notable one at it, 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 it MD Anderson, it was Stan Cope, Plinio Rossi, and me were the mentors for this guy trying to learn how to do this stuff. And at one point I stopped and I said, you know, you've got a, over 100 years' experience in interventional radiology teaching you, so let's make this a challenge. Each one of us has to come up with a different way of solving the problem, you know, and of course, Cope was all over it. I mean, he was so innovative. He was really great. And but he went, this isn't fair. <laughs> but he came up with it too. But I, we just had a laugh. We looked at each other. Somebody took a picture of us. And I said, no, you've got some experience in this room <laughs> with all these guys. Yeah, I loved every second of it. I'll admit it. I thought if I go to work and I'm not enjoying this, I'll retire. 
Well, that didn't happen. I got forced into it, but it opened up other territories for me. You know, I mean, I was able to help a lot of people all over the world, you know, and that, that wouldn't have happened in one little hospital in San Diego. It just, it just wasn't going to happen. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fantastic. We're kind of, kind of winding down here with our time, um, Hal. It's been really enjoyable. Where do you see the field of IR going? It sounds like you're, you're very still involved with uh, staying up on the research and what, what's happening in the field. Where do you see it going, and um, do you have any advice to trainees or early career IRs? You know, it's impossible to kind of look into the future and say, well, here's where we're going to be. You know, the difficulty with IR is that it really is so widespread in terms of what we can touch. I mean, anywhere in the body, and there's something that IR could do to help you. So it's not only OB-GYN or, or urology or neurology or whatever. And so as soon as the surgeons realized, you know, that with the work that Mike Dake did, you know, that they were going to be out of business if they didn't switch, the game was over because that was going to take all the angioplasty work, or not all of it, but a large portion of it was going to disappear because those guys had no option. Their specialty was going to die unless they started doing, you know, this kind of work. Now, some of the first guys to do it weren't very good at it. And they kept saying how easy it was, which it, which it certainly, as you know, is certainly is not. But I think that there are going to be more and more artificial intelligence solutions and nanoparticle solutions and, and things along that line that we are just now starting to think, well, maybe we could do this. I know that in 20 years, we'll look back on where we are today and go, wow. Those were the dark ages, just like people are looking back at my beginning of my career and go, wow, you didn't have any any shaped catheters? You know, it's like, no, 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 we, we kind of did it ourselves and, and had these big clunky machines that were thrown. When the first digital came in, I thought, oh, thank God we're going get to rid, get rid of that cut film because that was a nightmare. So I really see that it's going to be a lot of, of cancer treatment, my own personal feeling. There's going to be a lot of cancer treatment. There's going to be things that we now think, oh, that couldn't be done. I mean, I know they're they're starting to inject arteries in the knee to treat knee problems, and you think, hmm, hmm. You know, you hear that, and I think, could that really be real? You know, but yeah, you know, and so I— to think that I was on the on the first edge of embolization and how far it's come. I mean, you know, all the particles you guys are using and radioactive particles and all that stuff. That was a big step when you finally said, you know, let's inject something through this catheter rather than contrast media. You know, and then and then of course daughter's view was while we're there, let's do something to help fix the patient. That was the concept that he brought to it that was kind of crude and 12 French and he had to fight the surgeons. That's so what? He, he had brilliant ideas. He had medication in his refrigerator that he told his wife he wanted her to inject if he had a heart attack <laughs> with <a> fibrinolytic. <laughs> you know, I mean, this, this is way Oh, back. wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He was really something. Wow. That, that's that's something else. Uh, what a, what a visionary for sure, and exactly. what a, what a great experience and uh, opportunity you had to to be around people like that. Uh, what advice uh, might you have to trainees or early career IRs that are looking maybe to um, have a career full of passion? 
just look for the opportunity and don't be afraid to step out there. You know, I well, somebody asked me one time, you know, how do you have the guts to do this when you're in private practice? You don't have a net behind you, you know, the university to fight your battles if you've been sued and stuff. And I said, well, you know, I didn't try anything that I wouldn't do on a loved one. You know, I mean, basically, if this is the best choice, like the like, you know, doing the little fetal transfusions, if this is the best choice, give it a try. So you're looking for those things that are on the edge. Just be honest with yourself. Is this the best option? If it isn't, then what are you doing? You know, but if it is the best option, plan it out. But I would have times when I didn't feel right. This is kind of ethereal, spooky stuff. I had to be in the right mood if I was going to try something for the first time. And I'm not sure what it was, whether it's the phase of the moon or my, my hormonal cycle or whatever it was, you know. But I, I've actually sent patients home. I said, look, you know, today isn't the day. I don't, you know, I don't have it today. It's just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll call you when I'm ready for you. And most of them said, thank you. Some of them said, what? I was up at four o'clock in the morning. You know, and I said, ah, you, you know, when you're doing something like this, you have to be all in. Either you're all in or you shouldn't be doing it. And that's really why I retired. If I couldn't be all in, I had to retire. But I would just say, look for the opportunity. Find somebody that will help lead you there because you're not going to find it alone. I mean, without Joseph, I would have not had a career. What I would have done, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I'd have done something, but it wouldn't have been anywhere li like what has happened with me. And I thought, you know, when I went into medicine, you know, I was a math major in college, and, and I just realized that I didn't want to be a math person. That was, I could do it. I just didn't like it. You know, it was when Sputnik went up and they wanted everybody to be nuclear scientists, you know, and I went, no, not me. And so I went to med school and said, hey, I'll find something I love. It's a big enough field. I'll find something I love. If you don't love it, get out. That's what I'd say. You know, I mean, this this should be a passion. If this is the way of making a living, there's a lot of things smart guy like you could do to make a living that'd be a lot easier than doing this. You know, you fail all the time. That was the hardest part is the failures. Every day I'd fail at doing something that I wanted to do. You know, and I think, uh, sure, sure. Yeah, we've all we've all had those cases, right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I like something you said really, you know, really uh, resonated with me. And I think the I, the, the whole uh, idea of mentorship, like you were so lucky. I mean, part of it's maybe luck, timing. I don't know. Like, and when I talked to Dave Company, it was the same way. Like he surround was able to surround himself with people that were very good mentors and just were visionaries. And I, th I think if you're lucky enough or have the good timing or you're tenacious enough to seek out those opportunities and to be around those people, uh, I think that'll make your career uh, even uh, even better. So um, very good. I'd say, you know, sometimes the mentors pick you. Joseph picked me. He could see that I had a fire. And so he, he picked me, you know, and said, okay, we're going to go places. You know, follow me. And I went, yeah, okay. Right, right. You know, totally. And I, I feel the same way about John Kaufman when I was with him. I right. Mean, he's, definitely changed our field uh, so much. And uh, I was just lucky to be around him. And I think if you're a trainee or earlier in your career, if you can be around those kinds of people, you're, you're, you're going to benefit. And I, I one other thing, that, like you said, I completely agree with you. I, I think our patients need us to think outside the box. I, I tell my yes. patients when we're doing something different or maybe new, I practice in a cautiously aggressive manner. Like I'm, you know, I'm not going to do something stupid but sometimes they need us to think outside the box, do something a little risky, right? I mean, if you if you yep. play it safe your entire career, I think you're going to end up 
hurting some people by not helping, you know, by not being willing to help. And I, I try to tell some of the med students that come around, you know, and, and some of the interns and what that, that might rotate through with me is that they're really, sometimes patients really need us to, to step outside our comfort zone a little bit, but to be smart about it and be thoughtful and prepare for those cases, right? And maybe call it off if you're not feeling it, <laughs> if, it's a, if it's a bad moon rising, you know? <laughs> yeah, who, who knows why, you know? But, you know, it's one of those yeah. things where you you have to be humbly aggressive, if you will. You know, I I was training in, in Malmo, for, and one of the trainees had done a fellowship in interventional radiology, so I wanted to make it hard, so I wanted him to go up into one of the subclavian veins in a peg. And they're really, you know, they're spasm crazy. They're, they're really hard to work in. There are two of them, and they're hard to work in. And so I said, well, you know, put the catheter up there. And he fiddled with it for about five minutes and said, no, nah, I'm not going to do this. I, you know, I've already had a training. I, this is a waste of my time. I said, well, is it too hard? Look. And I went, tut, 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 put it in there. And I said, okay, now. If I can do it, you should be able to do it. And so we went at it back and forth and back and forth. He said, look, I'm not going to waste my time. I paid $5,000, whatever it was, to do this, and uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I said, look, you think you're really good, but you ought to be able to do this. You know, And if you can't do this, you're just good enough to kill somebody. So you ought to listen up. So he stormed out and went and talked to Andres. And Andres was such a great guy. He said, you know, Dr. Coons has done a lot of these. And if you can't learn anything from him, you probably should go home and you know, I'll refund your money. So he came back in, he came back in kind of with his tail between his legs and, and said, oh, okay, well, you know, let's do it. So then we had a good week. And I saw him like 10 years later in an airport, Dr. Coons. He said, yeah. He said, you know the one thing I learned from you? You're just good enough to kill somebody. He said, that rings in my head every time <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to do wow. something. But he, you know, he, he thanked me for kind of straightening him out. He just had the vision that he was really well trained. No, I mean I'm sure he could do a lot of stuff, but yeah, <laughs> you know, see, I'm right? Like, you, know, you, you gotta you gotta listen up when somebody who knows what they're doing is going. Don't do that. That's that's right. Well, well, thanks for sharing the tough love with that guy for sure. <laughs> Al, it's been uh, we kind of need to close up here. It's been an okay. absolute fantastic discussion with you, and I, I just can't thank you enough for your contributions to our field, to uh, Western Angio. You, uh, I can't wait to see you uh, the next time, and we'll uh, we'll uh, probably be in Hawaii the next time I can make it. So uh, there you I go. look forward to that. Yeah, those are but, the great meetings. The white meetings are sensational. <laughs> <laughs> they are the best. They are the best. And that's the ones I can convince my wife to go to. There so, you go. Um, that's why anyway. we have it there. Uh, you bet. <laughs> well, thanks again, Hal. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your retirement, and uh, we really appreciate you. Thank you, Peter. It was an honor. Thanks for thinking of me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lurie Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. 
find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 